So last week I uh, said we would look at Nehemiah uh, from the helicopter. One of the things about a helicopter is that a helicopter can hover. And tonight we're going to get back in the helicopter and we're going to hover over a different section of Scripture, Nehemiah chapter 10, Nehemiah chapter 11, Nehemiah chapter 12. You know, it's easy to read these books and just blow through them. But when you take some time and you read them and you look around, you will see how pertinent they are to where we are right now. Because there is an Old Testament commentator by the name of Derek Kidner. He's a brilliant Old Testament scholar. Just, I love the guy. And this section of Scripture, Nehemiah 10, 11, and 12, in his outline of the book of Nehemiah, here's what he calls it. He calls it an ordered society. An ordered society. Uh, you could say an ordered city. Because the wall was rebuilt, well, when the wall was down, there weren't many people who wanted to live inside of Jerusalem because there was no security. You, it was a dangerous place to live. Uh, you, you didn't have an alarm system there in your condo with, you know, put in your four-digit code. Your, we all know it's your year of birth. <laughs> that didn't exist. You had absolutely no security. Now, what they're going to start doing is they're going to repopulate it. And uh, this, this is very practical stuff. We don't think about this too much, but we've been thinking a, a lot about it in this nation because for a long time we had not, not perfect cities, not perfect communities, but we had ordered communities, we had an ordered society, we had, we had order. What has happened in the last year is that there has been a tremendous amount of disorder. And when you have disorder, you've got chaos. When you've got order, you've got calm. In our founding documents of this nation, one of the things that's emphasized is the importance of domestic tranquility. Right? How do you get domestic tranquility? By order, by structure. But when there is disorder, you got problems. Now, I'm going to make three points tonight. We're going to have three aerial photographs again. We're hovering in the helicopter, okay? First aerial photograph, number one on the outline is in Nehemiah, this would be Nehemiah 10, there is an obligation to obey God's commands. If you're going to have an orderly city, if you're going to have an orderly nation, if you're going to have an orderly community, if you're going to have an orderly home, there is an obligation to obey God's commands. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Joshua said. 
So there's an obligation to obey God's commands. That's in Nehemiah 10. We'll come back to that. Secondly, in Nehemiah 11, there is the orderly repopulation of Jerusalem and the nation. And this seems like it would be boring, but it's not. And then thirdly, in Nehemiah 12, beginning with verse 27, you have an orderly dedication of the wall. Let's take a minute and talk about an ordered society. Let's talk about an orderly city, an orderly community. I want to make a statement. As we are hovering over Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to hone in on 10, 11, and 12, I want to make this statement. They've rebuilt the walls. What does that mean? It means in our language today that Jerusalem was not a sanctuary city. Does it not? This term, sanctuary cities, we hear it all the time. I don't remember hearing it growing up. I don't remember hearing it when I was in college. I don't, remember, I don't remember hearing it until recent years. A sanctuary city. Um, you, can look, you can look it up, and there is, there's a network of sanctuary cities. What, what is a sanctuary city? Well, Jerusalem wasn't a sanctuary city. Jerusalem was an orderly city under the law of God. That's how you get order. You obey the Lord God Almighty. So Jerusalem was an orderly city under the law of God. 1 Corinthians 14, 40, in a different context, speaking of the church and how the church conducts itself, says this, let everything be done decently and in order. Anything that God does is done decently and in order. You study uh, mathematics, there's an order. Even though today, even that is being challenged. And you've seen this. I'm not making this stuff up. This whole, this whole warped perspective, this whole warped approach to everything through the lens of race, we actually have educators saying that if you adhere to the principles of mathematics, that's racism. And as you know, I'm not making this up. But the further an individual, the further a nation, the further an education system, the further a institution of higher indoctrination gets from the Lord God Almighty in his truth, the more insane one becomes. And we are watching this before our very eyes. Nothing surprises us anymore. Nothing. Oh, we'll still be surprised, but, <laughs> but, 
but it, it is infinitely insane because they have lost their tether. Did you ever play tetherball when you were a kid? Um, I, I, I think that's been outlawed. I, I don't know. I, I don't see many tetherball poles anymore. But it, it was pretty basic. It was a pole set in concrete, had a rope, and it had like a volleyball at the end. And uh, I don't know, the rope was what, maybe six feet long? And you'd knock it one way, and your buddy would try to knock it the other, and then, you know, you kept going, and you tried to get it so it'd wrap up all the way around, and that was tetherball. Brilliant game. <laughs> but it was fun. Um, the ball was tethered to the pole. The ball was attached. And what we're watching in our times is that those who professing to be wise have become as fools because they have become untethered to the truth of the living God. Let all things be done decently in order. Anything that God creates, there's an order to it. You, you look at the stars. If you don't have GPS and you get lost somewhere uh, in the wilderness, if uh, you were an Eagle Scout and you learned about the stars, you can still navigate your way out of there just by looking at the stars above your head because God created those and when he created them, everything was done decently and in order. Doesn't matter what God created, you're going to find things done decently and in order. Yet we have this, uh, we, we have this development in our nation that kind of came out of nowhere. I actually researched it, and the first sanctuary city was Berkeley, California. Now, if you've ever been to Berkeley, Berkeley's been untethered for a long, long time. I remember, I, I do remember this. I want to say it was um, the early 60s. I remember watching something on the news with Walter Cronkite. And it was a demonstration of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of college students in the streets. And I'd never seen that before. I'd seen it on the news in other countries. But this was a demonstration, and there was a guy named Mario Savio, and they had this movement called the Free Speech Movement. The Free Speech Movement morphed into the cancel culture today. Same, same people, same philosophy behind it, because you see, uh, they were untethered back then. And they continue to be without a tether. It, it just keeps getting crazier and crazier and crazier. And when this philosophy 
is embraced by those in leadership, in government, the result is that people's lives suffer. Think about sanctuary cities, like just a few. Uh, Portland. If you got a job offer that tripled your pay, and they offered you a condo in downtown Portland, you wouldn't take it. Why? Because downtown Portland is anarchy and it's chaos. I used to be a youth pastor in downtown Portland about 45 years ago. It, it's absolute anarchy and chaos because Portland's a sanctuary city, or Seattle, or Los Angeles. Sanctuary cities came about because they did not like the immigration laws of the United States. It was ignored that every nation in the world has immigration laws. But they didn't want immigration laws. Anybody at any time could come in and should be given rights and privileges and you know, you know the drill. Um, wherever you have sanctuary cities, oh, and that was because basically they had an issue with a wall. Is that not right? They had an issue with a border. Nations have borders, nations have walls, and it's always interesting to see the double standard of many of the leaders of this particular philosophy and this, is, this certain approach to life, um, that they're able to do well financially somehow. They're able to have multiple houses. They're able, they, they just do really, really well. But um, there's a double standard. I heard today on the news about a particular politician who went to a particular city to encourage rebellion. Yet they requested a police escort. We could use all kinds of illustrations. What happens in a sanctuary city, and there's a whole bunch of them, what happens in a sanctuary city is instead of order, you've got disorder. Instead of law, you've got lawlessness. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that in the last days, lawlessness would increase. We're watching that every day. Every day we're watching it. So now we have district attorneys in certain cities, and the district attorneys are utterly lawless. And police officers are being shot at or being attacked. And the, the criminal who is arrested is released without bail and sometimes is not even charged by district attorneys because we have district attorneys who have embraced a philosophy that is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-truth. It is satanic. You're not safe in a sanctuary city. 
How many times have we heard reports? One comes to my mind in San Francisco where a young woman was walking with her father down Pier 39, a tourist area, and this guy who was here illegally and had been arrested a number of times and released just shot her and killed her. That's lawlessness. That's evil. That's wicked. That's wrong. Jerusalem was not a sanctuary city. But you see, where you have law that is contrary to the word of God, you don't have an ordered society and you don't have domestic tranquility. You've got utter chaos and it's dangerous. James chapter 3 describes so well what's actually going on behind the scenes. We need to understand this stuff is not it's really not political, it's spiritual. And here's what's behind it. James chapter 3 and and James is going to talk about the wisdom that comes from God, the wisdom that comes from above. In James 3:13 Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, selfish ambition is the need to lead. It's the need to be first. It's the need to be number one. It's the need to be in control. It's the need to have your way all the time. It's the need to be in the spotlight. Now, uh, the ultimate one who attempted this was Satan when he rebelled against God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Seven times he said, I will, I will, I will become like the Most High. I will ascend to the throne of God. He wanted to become God, and he was cast out of heaven. That's selfish ambition. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Now watch this. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil So when we see evil and disorder in cities that have rejected the law of God, you know that the source is satanic. Jerusalem was not a sanctuary city. Jerusalem was a city that was under the law of God. It was under the authority of God. But when that is left... All you have is disorder and every evil thing. It might take you a while to get there, but you will get there, and it's what we see going around us now. The men of Issachar, 1 Chronicles 12, 32, were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. They understood the times. They had discernment. When you look at all this stuff, you discern it through the Word of God. This is really what's going on. This is what, what is behind this. 
Yet the men of Issachar not only discerned it and they understood it, but they knew what Israel should do. And so here we are living in this age and time, and we can discern it, but God doesn't leave us there. He'll also show us what to do. That's encouraging, and we need to be encouraged. The lawlessness is everywhere, but the word of God still stands, and Jesus is still Lord, and he is in control. God the Father is calling the shots. When it looks like it's out of control, it isn't. It just means that God is working his plan. And if you read the book from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it gets really interesting because you, you'll get glimpses in particular portions of Scripture about the plan that God has for the end times. And we're right on schedule. We're just right on schedule. So we don't have to fear. We can be encouraged. Let's go to Nehemiah and let's look at Nehemiah 10. In Nehemiah 10, what we've got here is we've got the promise to obey God's law. As an introduction to this, I, I want to read a few paragraphs from Thomas Schreiner, who's a professor at Southern Seminary, in regard to um, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and in regard to the covenants in the Old Testament, we're, we're not Old Testament people. We're not Jews. We're not Israel. We're the church. We're New Testament people. We're New Covenant. Um, take a look, before I read a couple paragraphs from Schreiner, take a look at Nehemiah 10, because something's going on, and it's very orderly, and they're going to sign some documents. So really, to get a running start at Nehemiah 10, look at the previous verse, chapter 9, verse 38. Now, because of all of this, and this had been, chapter 9, there had been a, um, Nehemiah had given them a history lesson, an accurate history lesson. And then 38 says, now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. So they're making a covenant with the Lord. They're making an agreement. And then you're going to see a whole list of names in 10. Um, this Nehemiah 10 was an obligation to obey God's word, uh, commands. An obligation to obey God's commands. Now... Let me just read this quickly from, from Schreiner because we get confused with the covenants in the Old Testament, what applies to us in the New. Schreiner says this, the Ten Commandments were given to Israel on Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, when Yahweh instituted a covenant with the people of Israel after delivering them from Egypt. These commands were repeated again in Deuteronomy 5 before they were about to enter the Promised Land. When we read particular text in the scripture, we must always read them in light of the overall story of redemption. The unfolding story, and this is really important, is one where God progressively unveils his person, his ways, and his will to his people. 
the progressive nature of revelation has often been compared to an acorn and an oak tree, where we begin with the acorn that grows into a mighty oak. The illustration is helpful because there is an organic relationship among the various covenants. So in Genesis 1, you don't have everything, you don't have Revelation 22. God, it, it, it's an acorn that's gonna grow and it's gonna be revealed to us progressively over time. Now we have the completed scripture. Let's say this. When we read about, when we read about the covenants in the Old Testament God made with Israel, we also read that God said that he would make a new covenant in Jeremiah 31. He said he would write the law on the hearts of his people and that he would forgive their sins. Jesus instituted, Schreiner says, the new covenant with his death and resurrection. And Paul designates himself as a minister of the new covenant. The coming of the new covenant means that believers are no longer under the old covenant. The old covenant was made with Israel as a people, and Israel was a theocracy, a nation, a kind of state church where the Lord reigned over his people. It was both the civil and the religious entity. In the new covenant, the people of the Lord are not limited to Israel, but in fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, all peoples are now included. In the new covenant, people from every tribe and language and people and nation, Revelation 5, 9, are members of God's household. That's Ephesians 2, 19. The church isn't identified with any particular nation, but consists of people from every nation. So then you have, you have the laws in, you have the law that's in the Old Testament. That law is divided into three types of law. Just real quick. And this will be on the final next week. So you have you have the moral law of God. That's the Ten Commandments. The moral law of God is still in effect for New Testament believers. It's, it's in effect for everybody, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every culture. It's the moral law of Almighty God. It's fixed. It's there so that everything will be done decently and in order. All right? So the moral law of God is always there. It's always in effect. But Israel had a civil law. We are not Israel. We are not under the nation of Israel. Uh, God made a covenant with them. God made a covenant with Moses. They're, the different covenants would have uh, signs. The, the sign of the covenant God made with Moses was the Sabbath. If you go to Israel today, they still observe the Sabbath. That nation shuts down. And by the way, Sunday is not the Sabbath. Saturday is the Sabbath. But I mean, that nation shuts down because they're Israel. We're not Israel. We're the church. So you had the civil law in Israel. That does not apply to New Testament believers. You had the ceremonial law. We don't sacrifice animals. Have you noticed that? We don't do that. Why not? Because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus paid it all. Jesus said, it is finished. John said, behold the Lamb of God, John the Baptist, who takes away the sin of the world. So when Jesus went to the cross, shed his blood and his body, was broken, um, 
that was the instituting of the new covenant. He, 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 uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he appeared to over 500 at one time. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to um, the apostles. Paul said, lastly, he appeared to me. And Paul goes on and says, if there's no resurrection, Christianity is a myth. We're fools. We've been caught. So you got the moral law, which still is in existence for all people. You got the ceremonial law, which is not applicable to us because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice and he paid it all and he's at the right hand of the Father and, he, and he's now making intercession for us and praying for us and one day he'll return for us. So the civil law does not apply to us. The ceremonial law doesn't, but the moral law does. All right? So let's go back. You guys still with me? So let's go back to Nehemiah 10. There was an obligation to obey God's commands. This is really interesting because when you, you'll see the names of beginning with 10.1. Now on the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah and Zedekiah, Sarariah, Azariah, Jeremiah. They were into the ayahs. You know, names come in and out of popularity. The ayahs were very big during this time. But these were the leaders who signed the covenant they're making with the Lord God Almighty. Now, go down to 28. It wasn't just the leaders that were making a covenant with God, and it wasn't just the leaders that had an obligation to obey God's commands. It was all the people. 28 says, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining, watch this. We haven't signed it, but we're with them. We're joining with their kinsmen, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. So what you've got in 10 is you've got an ordered society, you've got an ordered nation under the commandment of God, and they agree to obey it, and they also agree to take on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Now that's fascinating. Turn me to Deuteronomy 28. Because in Deuteronomy 28, it's a chapter, it's an amazing chapter. God gives Israel his law through Moses, and then there is this section where God talks about the blessings to those who obey his law and the curses that will come upon those who do not obey his law. What's interesting is that the blessings are outlined in 28 verses 1 down through 14. The curses to those who disobey run for verse 15 
all the way to verse 68. God is serious about his people obeying him. And I'm not going to read all of this, but I'm going to read some of it. 28.1, now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. That was Israel. Now, the meaning is for Israel. The interpretation is for Israel. When you interpret the Bible, there's one interpretation. There are not many interpretations. You don't have the correct interpretation until you have the meaning that was in the mind of the writer when he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So if you say to a guy at work, I'm going to take a lunch break and I'm going to go down and get a sandwich at the coffee shop and I'll be back in about an hour. And that guy says, fine. And then a coworker comes along and says, hey, where, where's Bill? Instead of saying, oh, he went down to the coffee shop to get a sandwich and he'll be back in an hour. He said, well, well, Bill went, on a, Bill went on a quest for eternal truth. And he has taken some time away to look deep inside himself, and he has, you know. No, that's, that's ridiculous. Why is it ridiculous? Well, you see, that's my interpretation. Well, guess what? You're wrong. Because that's not what Bill meant. You can, you can come up, you, you can invent interpretations all day long. But you don't have the correct interpretation, and there's only one interpretation. You don't have the interpretation until you have what was in his mind when he said the words. Until you get his intent. Okay. So, this is for Israel. But there's interpretation and then there's application. You can take a principle in Scripture that was meant for Israel. You can apply it. I think you can apply this to the United States, where we are right now. This isn't about the United States, but you can apply it. Uh, it. It says here, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. We have been the highest of the nations. We had a Christian foundation. We weren't perfect. We all know that. We all know it. But people, it, it was... It was it was based on scriptural principles, a lot of laws, and again, there was injustice, absolutely. But there was an effort to try to right the wrongs, historically. You go to D.C., you'll see scripture chiseled everywhere. The Koran wasn't chiseled in D.C. It was the word of God. And we have been set high, just in application. Verse 2, all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. God loves to bless his people. He loves to do it. If you played football, maybe you were a tight end. You didn't, they didn't throw to you a lot. But on one particular play, all the receivers were covered and you were open and they hit you with a pass. And you were on the 10-yard line and you had 90 yards to score. And you had a wide open field. And you're going as fast as you can. But some speedy defensive back overtook you. 
uh, he just flat, uh, he came after you. He pursued you. That's what God does with us. He loves to pursue us and bless us. He loves to pursue the man who obeys. He loves to do it. God loves to bless his people. It goes on and says, and I'm going to pick and choose here. The Verse 7, the Lord shall cause your enemies to rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to. He will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Um, look at verse 10. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you were called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of you. 11, the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. This is for those who obey him. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity. The offspring of your body, the offspring of your beast. In other words, financial well-being. Verse 12, the Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens to give rain to your land in its season, to bless all the work in your, of your hand. And sh you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. That used to be true of us. What happened? Well, you know what happened. We took the moral law of God and we removed it. We expunged it. Took it out of the schools. Every classroom used to have the Ten Commandments posted. Got rid of that. Can't have that. Took prayer out of the schools. Oh, that's, that's no big deal. It was huge. It was absolutely huge. Look at verse 13. To those who obey. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you only will be above, and you will not be underneath if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe, to observe them carefully. And do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today to the right or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. Those are the blessings. Let's look at some of the curses. Go to verse 43. The alien who is among you shall rise above you higher and higher, but you will go down lower and lower. It seems that's exactly what is going on when you have sanctuary cities that are lawless. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, let's say this. When you get into Nehemiah, they were to separate themselves from foreigners. They were to specifically separate themselves from the Moabites and the Ammonites. Uh, yet, yet, people from those tribes could become a part of Israel if they forsook their gods. They weren't utterly rejected. Ruth was a Moabitess. And she said to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Naomi said, you stay here, I'm going back to Israel. She said, wherever you go, I will go, and your God shall be what? My God, I want your God. She went with Naomi back to Israel, and she was welcomed. And there was a man who saw her by the name of Boaz, 
she winds up marrying Boaz. Boaz and Ruth, Ruth the Moabitess, who embraced the Lord God of Israel, became, Boaz and Ruth became the great-grandparents of David, king of Israel. So you see, there was room for the foreigner. There was always room for the foreigner. But not their gods. Uh, the, these curses are stunning. These curses are frightening. If you look at the history of the Jews, it, it follows the blessing and the curses. Now, this is sobering stuff. But I want to remind you guys again that just because a nation abandons God doesn't mean that, uh, that we abandon God. It means every man has to decide for himself who's going to be my God, who's going to be my Lord. And this is what we're facing. Even as the culture deteriorates, we want to be standing right there with Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So in my home, Jesus is the King of Kings. The Bible is the Constitution. Not that I don't obey the laws of the land. I obey the laws. I pay my taxes. Uh, until the government tells me, requires of me, to disobey the law of God. And then you get a decision. Is the Lord God Almighty my God, or is the government my God? So this is where we are. But the Lord loves to bless his men, even when a nation is running away from the Lord. He'll still bless us. Doesn't mean we won't have hardship and difficulty. We will. But we don't have to fear, because God, God is looking. He's looking, and he's looking at hearts. Let's quickly go to the second point, Nehemiah 11, which is the orderly repopulation of Jerusalem and the nation. The orderly repopulation. We are repopulating our nation at an incredible rate right now, but you could not say in any sense that it is an orderly repopulation. You've got people's lives being destroyed. You've got children being destroyed. You've got sickness. You've got sexual abuse. You've got all kinds of things happening, and the core reason is spiritual. Just, under, just know that. These headlines we're reading, and this despair at the southern border this is spiritual stuff. And those who want us to think that they care, they don't care at all. People are just, people are to be used. People are to be thrown away. People are trash. All that matters is their selfish ambition, their power, 
that they're in control, that they're number one, that they defeat and demolish any opposition, and that they have absolute authority. That is satanic. So we've got a repopulation going on, but it's not, it's not orderly. It is disorderly, and as we saw in James, where there's that kind of wisdom that doesn't come from God, but it comes from the enemy, there is disorder, and every evil thing is going on down there. Unchecked. And they turned a blind eye. And you say, man, you're so political. I'm not political, I'm Bible. This is Bible. Is it not? Yeah, it is. Nehemiah 11, verse 1. I was going to teach tonight on 10 ways to have a happy life. <laughs> I, uh, but I decided not to. The way you have it, you, you want to have a happy life? Obey God. Do what he says. Obey his commandments. I'm not going to read this, but I came across an article this week by Jim Elif called 35 Reasons Not to Sin. They're just bullets. One, because a little sin leads to more sin. That doesn't lead to a happy life. Two, because my sin invites the discipline of God. Oh boy, yeah, that's what I want. Uh, you know, uh, my dad had this principle that if I obeyed, he'd bless me. If I disobeyed, he'd discipline me. I always wondered where he got that. He got it from his dad. It comes from the Word of God. Here's the third reason not to sin, because the time spent in sin is forever wasted. Here's another one, number six, because in time, my sin always brings heaviness to my heart. Because my sin always makes me less than what I could be. Because others, including my, my family, suffer consequences due to my sin. You never sin alone. It always affects those who you love the most. It makes sense to obey the Lord. So 11 of Nehemiah, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people, watch the orderliness of this. The leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. Okay, and then you got a listing of the people and included Jerusalem and included the countryside. But in the whole nation, there were no sanctuary cities that said, we refuse to obey the law of God. Didn't happen, didn't exist. Wasn't put up with. Third, Nehemiah 12. There was an orderly dedication of the wall. What we have today is that we have a demonization of a wall. What God calls good, they call evil. Uh, walls bring security. Walls protect the domestic tranquility. Is there a pathway, a legal pathway? Yeah. Note Nehemiah 12, verse 27. It says this. 
Now, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places, the priests, to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Uh, 30, verse 30. The priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Uh, 31. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall. See, that's, that's significant because they were mocked earlier that that wall that you built won't even stand up. It won't, it's, it's, it's just an inferior wall. No, so what does he do? I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall towards the refuse gate. And then he has, on 38, the second choir proceeded to the left while I followed them with half of the people on the wall. See, it, it, was, uh, it was a significant wall. It, it was a wall that provided what needed to be provided. And God was worshipped. There was orderly worship. There was orderly praise. Because that's part of an orderly society and an orderly family and an orderly nation. As we have said... The first half of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall. The second half of Nehemiah is about rebuilding people to know the Lord God. And it's our job as men. We're the family pastors. It's, if no one else follows Christ, you need to follow Christ. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They need to see it. They need an example. Not that you're perfect, never will be perfect until Jesus returns, but that there's no compromise. These things aren't up for discussion. When it comes to the truth of God, when it comes to the law of God, this is how I'm going to live my life. And that is, as we saw last week, that's a man with gravity. That's a man who just by his life, by his existence, by his behavior, has, has substance, has weight. And by a man's life who's following Christ, there is a gravity and there is a pull to others to follow that example. You pull them into your orbit as you follow Christ. Paul said, you follow me as I follow the Lord. And you pull them by the power of your life submitted to Christ. You pull them into your orbit and you teach the young how to live. They may get away from it for a while, but don't get discouraged if they're away. I mean, the last chapter has not been written. Let me give you a final thought here. It's easy to get discouraged in these times. God blesses those who obey even in a nation that disobeys. A nation is just comprised of individuals and it's comprised of families. So if the majority of families disobey, if the majority of families, guys, say, you know, they're going to do it this way. I remember my son, John, 
at a certain time in his life, he was, you know, he was not a boy. He was on his way to becoming a man. He was in adolescence, and he, he, he was trying, he, he, wanted to, he wanted to launch out. And he said to me one night, he said, hey, Dad, I'm going with some friends from school, and we're going to go down to the Irving Mall. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And I said, yeah, actually, you're not. I said, who's going with you? He said, it's just us. It's just these kids. I said, yeah, that's not going to happen. And he said, Dad, I knew you were going to say that. I said, well, you're a prophet. <laughs> he said, Dad, I knew you were going to say that because you're so strict. And I said, yeah, I'm pretty strict. But you're not going down there. I, is there a parent going with you? No. You know, some guys and some girls. I said, yeah, it's not going to happen. Dad, you're so strict. You're always so strict. I said, you know about the guy who was shot last week at the Irving Mall on an escalator by a gang member? And he said, what? I said, yeah. The guy's coming up the escalator. The gang member's coming down, sees the guy he's trying to shoot, and he shoots the innocent bystander, the father. There was the family. He said, I didn't know that. I said, I know you didn't know it. That's all right. But I knew it. And I'm not letting you go down there. And then every once in a while, I would hear different context, different situation. Dad, you're so strict. Yeah, I know. Well, Tommy's dad, he's letting him go. He's letting him. I said, yeah. Well, Tommy's dad's an idiot. <laughs> now, I didn't say that. I'm thinking it. Tommy's dad has no gravitas. Tommy's dad has no discernment. Tommy's dad is a, is a wreck. Not even faithful to his wife. Gives no direction to his kids. He doesn't care. Am I going to let that guy down the street who has no gravitas determine out of peer pressure what we do in this family? No. Now, did I say any of that to my son? No. What's fun is when your kids have their own kids. <laughs> and the older the kids get, the more like you they become. It's a wonderful day <laughs> in the neighborhood because they begin to see the reality and the wisdom of following the commands that are sourced in God because without it there is disorder and every evil thing. So stick to your guns. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The nation can decay, that's fine. God will bless you. So how do you know that? Does it, I'm not saying you'll be pain-free. It's not going to happen because through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But God, God has his eyes on his men. 2 Chronicles 16.9 The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth looking for those whose hearts are fully his that he may strongly support them. Let's be those men to the glory of God. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you.
Thank you for forgiveness in Christ. We, uh, we don't get this right all the time. We make mistakes. Of course we do. We're flawed people. But what a Savior you are. Our sins can be confessed. We can be cleansed. And we move on. We learn lessons. And even when our children are away from you, that doesn't mean they're away from you forever. Perhaps at this season. But seasons change. And things change in their lives. And as you opened our eyes, you can open theirs. We commit our families to you. Do your work. We trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.